This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Tonya Eckfeld. Tonya is a Principal Fellow at the University of Melbourne, a Distinguished Research Fellow at Northwestern Polytechnical University in Xi'an, and is an Ancient Chinese History Consultant. Tonya joined me in the studio to talk about the NGV exhibition Terracotta Warriors – Guardians of Immortality, as well as the Qin Dynasty and the surrounding works by contemporary Chinese artist Sai Guo Chang. Now, I'm so excited to get to speak about the next topic with a very special guest, Professor Tonya Eckfield, who is a Principal Fellow at the University of Melbourne in the School of uh, Historical and Philosophical Studies, one of my favourite. She's also associated with a wonderful centre at the university called the Grimwade Centre, which we'll, um, I guess, give more context for in a minute. And then... Uh, I'm also very uh, pleased to hear that Professor Tonya Eckfeld has been uh, just announced as a Distinguished Research Fellow at Northwestern Polytechnical University in Xi'an in China. So uh, obviously Tonya has a, a huge amount of um, expertise that she'll be drawing on today that we're talking about in particular a wonderful exhibition on at the National Gallery of Victoria in the international space on St Kilda Road. It is uh, China's terracotta army from the Qin Dynasty and uh, it also features the work of a wonderful contemporary artist from uh, mainland China, uh, Sai Guoqiang, and he's done a beautiful, oh, a, a number of beautiful works which um, really surround the space and uh, certainly add a lot to the ancient artefacts that we see from the Qin Dynasty. So I welcome uh, Professor Tonya Eckfeld now. Hi there, Tonya. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Um, so there's a lot to uh, to cover off and maybe perhaps people listening in don't know much about the Qin Dynasty. Um, I am really interested to get a better understanding of where we're placed in history in terms of the timeline of um, history and how we can, I guess, understand the, the level of age, the ancientness, if that's a word, to, of the things, the artefacts and items that we'll be talking about. And, of course, the National Gallery's exhibition, the, one of the main events, of course, is the Terracotta Army, and uh, they are quite... Um, commanding, I guess, pieces and two uh, massive um, life-size, pretty much, or if not bigger, uh, warriors. So in terms of the, the Qin dynasty, I believe it is one of the earliest in the timeline of dynasties across Chinese history. Uh, how can we understand where this is situated, not only in Chinese uh, history but also in global history? Well, we're looking at a dynasty that's 2,200 years old. So it's equivalent to the classical era in Europe. So we're talking about ancient Greece and Rome. And the Qin dynasty is really the beginning of China as we know it, where we've got a single unified empire and it takes up that huge landmass, uh, very similar to the area that China occupies today. Well, that's pretty uh, interesting. And it's also interesting that the Qin dynasty uh, wasn't particularly as long-lived as some of the others, and people have contrasted it with the Han dynasty. That's right. Um, we, you know, you've indicated that really the Qin is probably... It's a really uh, the most important dynasty in the sense that it, it 
it identifies really China. It's the beginning of China as an empire. But, yeah, you've pointed out it's, it is actually the shortest dynasty of all. It only lasted um, 14 years. So it's incredibly short but incredibly important. So it did exist in other forms before it became the great empire and for, uh, for about five centuries before it, it formed a dynasty, it, it did occupy a big kingdom and a very important kingdom um, in that area. Mm. And um, in terms of the the scope of uh, the Qin Dynasty and I guess the size of the territory that eventually uh, encompassed the Qin Dynasty, we saw obviously the emperor of that uh, dynasty, Qin Shi Huang, who uh, came to the throne at age 13 and was really very much about expanding the territories uh, that he really had um I guess, rulership or emperorship over. That's right. He'd inherited the, the throne at the age of 13, so he'd been born a prince. Um, and he, he at that time, with the kingdom that he um, inherited was one of seven huge kingdoms occupying that area that we now know as China. Um, that period, called the Warring States period, lasted for about 250 years. And thanks to Qin Shi Huang and really his... Um, martial efforts for a period of 25 years all seven kingdoms um, were dissolved and Qin was victorious so he formed a great empire um, by the age of about 38. Yes exactly and we're talking about um, 221 BCE so uh, it's a, a bit of a important achievement I guess to be at that time amassing more and more uh, territories or kingdoms it is as you say kind of an early stage of the Chinese empire and a building of an empire Um, what kinds of people were included in those kingdoms in terms of I guess their region or ethnicity um well, interestingly, the Qin people themselves were from the far west of the Chinese uh, empire, what, be- what became the Chinese empire. And current thinking is that they may have originally come from even, even further west. So there was a diversity of peoples and a diversity of uh, ruling systems and um, cultures. Um, so the Qin, the Qin dynasty was really important in unifying many of the kind of basic systems that have lasted through the present day. So although short-lived only 14 years, the impact has been really, really huge. Um, Qin Shi Huang ordered the standardisation of currency, of weights and measures, of written script, of things like axle widths, um, and he completed colossal infrastructure projects. So we know about the Great Wall. Um, mm. There were many walls in that, in the, across what became China, um, and Qin Shi Huang demolished many of those and set the walls at the borders uh, to both unify China and also um, improve its defences. He built superhighways, canals, um, palaces, and of course his tomb. Um, so, really. That enabled um, a very efficient economy and uh, very efficient transport that was both uh, was good both militarily and also for um, you know the well-being of the people in terms of food distribution uh, and so on mm. and um, this kind of time in Chinese history is known for its spirituality as well and that's pretty clear in the exhibition is there are a whole range of artifacts that are of I guess um, 
divine creatures or different creatures, not human. Uh, what are some of those really interesting um, iconographies or symbols before and after or during the Qin dynasty? Well, I think the most important thing is the tomb itself, really. That's the biggest symbol of all. Um, and it shows the importance that people placed on the on the afterlife and the sense of the soul living on. So um, they believed in the here and now but they also believed in um the spiritual plane and the impact of of ancestors and um and so on so what is that what is that understanding i mean there's a lot of discussion around this emperor thinking about immortality is that a way of becoming immortal it is a way of becoming immortal and i would say that was a big issue for him during those 25 years of fighting uh he never knew when he might be killed so uh the the um, afterlife for his soul, so his eternal life, would have been on his mind, mm. uh, and the tomb was a was a necessity for that. It's a really, really huge complex. It's f- more than fifty six square kilometres. So I have the feeling that um, he really was establishing also sort of a, a precinct for a very long lasting dynasty. He didn't expect it would only last fourteen years. He was setting up something that would last centuries and um, probably he expected the subsequent generations would live there as well Um, and the tomb had everything that he would have had above in his normal life uh, that existed at the at the tomb site it was like a kind of a parallel universe mirroring the real world but underground it's pretty astounding to imagine. You just said 56 kilometres. I mean, that's a huge amount yeah. of real estate. That is. Um, it, as you said, it was discovered only in modern times in the 20th century in 1974 when local farmers were digging an irrigation well in Lintong district in Xi'an. Uh, I believe you've been to the uh, excavation site and have been part of different efforts. That's right. It's uh, the... the um Chin Chi Huang's tomb has been part of my life for a long time. So when I was at, I was at school, I was very interested and followed the discovery um, in, through the 70s and um, in, was lucky enough to visit in the 80s. And then in the 90s, developed a very close working relationship with the Shanxi Provincial Institute of Archaeology. So that gave me uh, unprecedented access to excavation sites. And I was very fortunate that whenever there were new discoveries, I was able to go to those restricted um, locations and uh, to really have a look at what was being excavated and then to follow through the, the mystery of what was being discovered and then making meaning of that. You could say mystery became history th- um, you know, through that work. So it's been a very, very fascinating process. And in fact, uh, as a result of, I guess, the discovery of Qin Shi Huang's tomb and that interest all those years ago, um, that's, you know, in Chinese imperial tombs have become my life's work. So it's been pretty awesome. It sounds amazing. Um, we, so we are talking, as I said, about uh, Emperor Qin Shi Huang's mausoleum or tomb, and you said that he had access down there to all the different things he would have needed in his living uh, life. When I was looking through the exhibition, um, it said that there was, among many, many other things, uh, horse bones found from living horses. That Were the horses buried in the mausoleum or the tomb with the emperor, do you think? Yeah, it's quite a common thing in graves and in tombs to bury horses, bury carriages and even bury 
uh, people, uh, you know, sacrificed people as to act as servants um, or concubines in the afterlife. So there's been a long history of that um, in China. Um, But there are many, many pits with many things in them. I can say that a a five-year very detailed survey has just been completed at the site um, and they haven't been able to completely survey the whole site. It's just too vast. Uh, But to date they've discovered the locations of more than 200 pits. So there are a lot of um, both real things in those pits and also replica um, things Mm. like the warriors. Uh, But there are real animals, uh, replica animals, and there are real people and replica people, uh, plus a lot of useful objects um, and most of those useful objects we, uh, f- that we know about so far are from the pits of warriors um, so they fall into the category of all sorts of weapons. Mm. Uh, so in terms of this mausoleum given that it was made for the emperor did we also find the emperor? Uh, well the emperor is still there as far as we know and yeah. he's under the great tomb mound. So there's a colossal pyramid at the site it's bigger than the uh, Great Pyramid at um, Giza. Really? Uh, in Egypt, yep. Really, really sh- covers a, a huge area. It's about 350 metres uh, on each side of a huge square pyramid, about 47 metres high. So it's really like an artificial mountain. So he's interred, we, um, we assume, under, the, under there uh, in, a, in a pit, uh, which would be like an underground palace. Um, and recent... this. And recent surveys have discovered that that mound is within a, a big walled compound, so that forms an inner compound, and then a, another wall around that uh, for an outer compound. And if you think about the Forbidden City, for those who've been there, as a mm. kind of a walled compound with a lot of uh, rooms and um, palatial residences and halls, um, those that, that walled area is like that. And interestingly, the warriors are about... Their, their three pits uh, are about 1.5 to 2 kilometres away from that primary mound. Mm. So uh, the best treasures are yet to come. There have been some recent excav- excavations in that inner area. Um, they've found palaces, they've found um, residences, um, altars for worshipping you know, the spirit of the dead ancestor and s- providing for his needs, um, graves of concubines, and also pits of other very, very special figures, um, including entertainers, and one very, very special pit which had 12 figures in it uh, under the emperor, who was very tyrannical and very controlling and really ruled in peacetime as he had in wartime. So he's very, very tough and very harsh ruler. Under him he had three known as dukes and they implemented his orders with nine chamberlains who were the head of government departments and then the orders would go out through the around about 40 commanderies around the empire for the military to um, enforce. So one pit uh, in that uh, inner sanctum, that palace area adjacent to the um, underground palace of the emperor himself, uh, had 12 figures, probably the three dukes and nine chamberlains. We're very, very lucky in the NGV exhibition because one of the chamberlains is there. So we've been given a very special selection of 
not just warriors, mm. but of figures from different pits at the um, tomb site. There are really hierarchies of figures and, um, um, you know, quite... Quite, and they're quite extraordinary in the way that they represent the um, the whole life and um, government of Qin Shi Huang's empire. Mm. Well, let's talk about some of those um, warriors. I'm just checking my notes so I can refer to them and maybe describe them visually for people mm. who may not have seen it yet because it, it's only just recently opened. The first figure that we see when we kind of walk in, it's on the left-hand side. And I, I must mention that they're uh, all distinct and separated in a, a very large, clear box with a backing that's a mirror. So you can kind of walk around and see pretty much all the sides of the warriors themselves and the horses that are there. And um, the first figure has these beautiful billowing sleeves and um, a, a beautiful robe and a lot of them do have their hair tied up um, and they're all of, of course very distinctive they have very large shoes flat kind of shoes that are square edged um, but I was really interested in the fact that that one was um, I guess had that beautiful uh, material field or look to it that those billowing kind of um, folds of the of the material that are so you know precise and and stunning i mean for me looking at that sculpture i've seen so many other sculptures across the the history of art and it it does seem to be a very advanced um sculpture what is what is that figure in particular representing well in amongst the group that's come from from china uh, we've got different ranks of soldiers from ordinary infantrymen through archers and officers and we're lucky to have two generals. So that figure with the very billowy um, robe that mm. you described um, is one of the two generals in the exhibition. Um, and I, I do want to comment, first of all, though, on the display because yep. you mentioned that. And I have to say that the warriors at the NGV in Guardians of Immortality, um, they're the best I've ever seen the warriors uh, so far and the um, concept of displaying them with mirrors at the back is is wonderful because you get it the, the lighting is is fantastic and you get a wonderful 360 degree view of the warriors mm. plus there's that great multiplying effect so you really get the sense of being amongst the warriors and you get the sense that there are hundreds mm. as or even thousands as there are in the actual tomb pits um the two, the first two figures are both generals, one unarmoured and one armoured, and those are very, very special. When you go to the exhibition, I recommend anyone have a really close look at their faces. They're about 1.9 metres tall and they're standing on a small pedestal, so they really look down. One of them mm. is extremely ferocious, I find, um, and you get the, the really the sense that these are individual Portraits. Of course, all the warriors are different and each has a different face um, and they have fabulous hairstyles and so on. Um, but these may be individual portraits of very, very high-ranking generals. So one can imagine that these might be um, 
men, uh, very, very senior fighting men who've accompanied Qin Shi Huang in his battles during the, his rise to emperor. And one of them, it looks extremely ferocious. I've, I, when I looked at him, I thought, oh, my goodness, if you were here in real life, you'd look at me and um, just as soon look at me and cut my head off. He was so ferocious. The other one is uh, quite quite different in character and looks very much the strategist. So these are really, really not just individual-looking figures and portraits, but really, really get a sense of the character of the individual. Yeah, I agree. That was one thing that very much stood out to me was they are completely individual and um, perhaps they were, as you said, based on real life people. Um, And there's, as you said, two really huge 1.9 metre um, fact terracotta warriors and one of them is armoured and another one is not Mm. and um, it's interesting to see I guess the armoury that was used at the time which there's also a bit of a like model replica um, that they've put together as well with these very intricate kind of tiles that were um, covered over them. What was the thinking behind the types of clothing and, uh, and protection that these soldiers and officials were wearing? Well the stone armour is very very interesting the stone armor was discovered in 1994 and it uh i was lucky to i was lucky to visit the visit the uh, excavation of those and it was a huge mystery at the time it took the archaeologists about four years to actually figure out how to reassemble the armor so the pottery figures were very important because many of the pottery figures are wearing armor but it's part of the clay body. Mm. So through that, the archaeologists were able to reconstruct the armour and there are different configurations of armour um, for different um, military roles. So some um, some of the armour, um, it's, it's, it's uh, narrower, some of it's uh, more complete around the body, um, some of it has... Uh, covers the shoulders and likewise with the helmets it was a big mystery how they how they should be um, reassembled so it took about four years to figure that out the armor in the pits uh, they're about um, about 60 suits of armor and about 40 helmets and there's even one suit of armor for a horse they're all made of stone it's a very very um, uh, fine kind of local local stone but in fa- in real life uh, that armor would have been made of leather so it would have been leather plates which would have been um, uh, attached together by perhaps little bronze rivets or stitched together uh, and in this case it's la- it's lasted more than 2,000 years by being replicated in stone mm. so the problem was originally the plates were uh, linked together with bronze wire and all of the bronze wire had disintegrated so it was a, a, a really really difficult job to to reconstruct those well I mean what is striking is the craftsmanship of, of the time and you know we see these beautiful warriors but also before we get to see them we do see everyday objects uh, from different dynasties that are re- relevant to this um, mm. exhibition and there are those uh, I guess belt hooks and different um, items that soldiers would have used there's also these very beautiful and small uh, arrows that were pretty impressive um, and some daggers yep. so what what are, what were those kind of things made of because I think the materials are really important to um, the meaning of the objects as well 
those earlier objects are also Qin objects, but they're objects from the Qin kingdom rather mm. than the Qin empire. So they're from the spring and autumn period that lasted about 300 years and from the warring states period that lasted for about 250 years before the Qin empire um, rose up to to supremacy. So those those wonderful objects um, are the really belong to the elite. So that was a period of of kings and uh, it was a feudal system. So there were uh, nobles, there were vassals, um, and uh, and it was a period of um, you know sort of small kingdoms. In the spring and autumn period, there were a hundred kingdoms occupying that area, all in conflict with each other. So um, the elite were very into power. They were very into um, luxury objects. And there were certain kinds of luxury objects that they took to the tomb with them. They didn't take everything, but they took a lot of objects of uh, of bronze and jade um, and uh Less uh, less wealthy people would take pottery uh, and probably wooden objects with them to the to the tomb. So um, there are very beautiful weapons, um, probably too beautiful to use. Some of them have, have gold handles and they're in, encrusted with jewels. Um, so they may be ritual or ceremonial um, weapons, and also sets of. Uh, uh, dining vessels. So, according to your status in society, um, you could have, um, you know, if you were a, an ordinary official, maybe one set of uh, set of uh, tableware, which might be a, a cooking pot and a, a spice dish and another kind of serving dish. Um, if you were a king, you might have a set of nine. So it was very, very. Uh, the entitlements were really, really closely. Regulated, but there'd be standard things that would be put in. So these dining vessel, cooking and dining vessels, uh, wine and uh, pouring and drinking vessels, water basins and jugs, um, weapons, uh, jewelry, horse, horse accoutrements, um, and so on. So there was sort of a limited range. Not everything for daily life, but certain things that affirmed the person's status in the afterlife. Mm. In terms of the jade pieces that we see, um, what kind of meaning or significance does jade have as a material to the Chinese um, at the time? Well, it's a, a very, very precious object. and pre- In fact, jade has been considered more precious than gold. Gold, gold only gradually became um, des- desirable and it's more so at, in later periods and, and the gold, gold and golden objects and gold working technology was brought from the West. Um, jade um, is a rare, it's a rare stone. It's a very, very beautiful stone. Um, it's rare in China and comes from you know the outer reaches of China and other places, mm. um, so it really was a sort of a, a luxury and very prized uh, object. Yeah, and it it certainly um, also had or was seen as having the power to prevent the body from decaying and um, thus guaranteeing eternal life, which is pretty important. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. So jade objects were put in the orifices at death, you know, to try to, you know, um, thought to preserve the body. And some of the Han princes, so the Han dynasty follow, immediately followed the Qin, uh, had jade suits made for them wow. with the idea that that would preserve the body 
or at least the soul. Mm. Um, and so I'm guessing then that there were jade elements that were excavated at the mausoleum site, were there? Well, there may be jade objects. I'm sure we will find jade objects when there's more work done. But yeah. at the moment, uh, we haven't got to those really um, core uh, locations. Mm. So, well, if we think about the fact that they were discovered in 1974 and we're now into 2019, a lot of people might have assumed that, you know, we've already discovered a lot or we'd already discovered the warriors, so what more is there to discover? Clearly there is a lot to to, to unpack and to actually find, to dig. Um, how many people are working on this and where are they from? Uh, there's... So there is a huge team at the site. So um, previously in the, um, the site was under the Shantse Provincial Institute of Archaeology and then in about, I think, 2005, uh, the Terracotta Warriors site got its own archaeology institute. So there's a huge team of archaeologists working there. They do incorporate archaeologists from all over China and... Um, in terms of some of the concert, there are very good conservation labs there, and they work a lot with um, international partners mm. for the conservation research as well. I can't give you a number on how many people, mm-hmm. but it is a huge operation to, um, you know, continue to do research and survey and dig and conserve uh, at the site. So, really, one of the big issues in contemporary China is how to manage the um, material culture because really the amount of wonderful treasures you could without any doubt and and completely truthfully say it's an infinite quantity Mm. Uh, and uh, more and more comes out and uh, then it has to be cared for. Mm. Well, let's just put um, the scale out there in terms of the number of um, terracotta army or pieces that there are. How, How many are there? The official figure is 6,000 and a lot of people were starting to say mm, maybe 8,000 but really we don't know and there may be other pits of warriors, we don't know. So the largest pit which was the one found in 1974, pit number one, um, the estimate is about 6,000 warriors in that pit. About 1,000 have been excavated there I think yeah. um, and about another 1,000 perhaps in pit two and 69 in pit three and then there are other pits with smaller numbers closer to the main part of the tomb so you know look about eight thousand warriors that we know of um but as i said there are more than 200 pits there and uh, only a small number have been opened thus far so and and not all the pits have been found so Mm. uh, there's a lot more excitement to come it is. It sounds amazing. Um, in terms of the actual terracotta itself, a lot of people might think that that could be a material that could degrade or break um, easily depending on how it's made and how it's preserved. What was the kind of condition of the different uh, terracotta army pieces that were found? Okay, well, firstly, the wonderful thing about pottery is that it does last it doesn't degrade so we're very lucky there um the unlucky part is that virtually every single figure uh was broken so um when the Qin dynasty fell uh there was a lot of 
uh, instability, a lot of fighting um, and a lot of, um, well, it was an opportunity for people to, to vent their anger really at what they'd suffered during the Qin Shi Huang's rule. So a lot of the pits, people knew where the pits were at that time. They were opened and people uh, went in and damaged and they also set fire to the pits. So if you think about the pits, they were covered over with huge... Um, beams or huge almost tree trunks so all of that caught fire um, those had been holding up the earth above so that everything above the, collapsed um, right. and that then resulted in the breakage of the warriors so virtually every single one has been you could just say smashed mm. so it's a huge operation to reconstruct those you have to find all the pieces you have to fit them together um adhesives needs to be used um and it's a credit to the wonderful conservation work of the chinese material conservators when you look at the warriors in the exhibition um how well presented they are they're the real thing um and they've just been very carefully reassembled and um you know, patching over the cracks has been done very, very sensitively, very mm. carefully, um, so that we get the uh, complete impression of exactly how they looked when they were made. And I guess one of the issues in the future, and perhaps a good reason we shouldn't uncover everything at the Warriors site, um, is we have to think how will the Warriors stand up, those that have been reassembled in 50 years' time? Uh, what will happen to those adhesives and the um, conservation, you know, how long can the conservation methods that have been used last? Mm, that's an excellent point. Uh, obviously, conservation and restoration is a very controversial topic in art history, and there are a whole range of philosophies or approaches in different eras as well. Um, as you said, these have been very sensitively um, looked after and reconstructed. I mean, looking at those terracotta warriors, I wouldn't have noticed that there were different bits that mm. had had to be reassembled because you, I couldn't see any of the joining areas. Yeah, the the um, conservators do an amazing job. They're just so skillful and um, so care, so careful and well considered in the work that they do. So. Uh, you know, it's really mm. impressive. And it's probably a good thing that in China, the traditional arts, you know, of ceramics and, you know, a whole range of other forms, art forms, are still very much taught and learned and people become experts in these particular areas. That's right. There's been a... Uh, in terms of... Uh, conservation practice there's been a long history of handing down from master to apprentice um so that's been a, that's a really really strong part of chinese materials conservation um the other part though is materials science and there's a place for uh all for you know the cutting edge science too in terms of how to understand objects and how to you know, analyse them and plan for their care and conservation. So I think we need to put those two things together. Um, and there's a great growth in materials conservation science in China right now. So uh, we at the Grimwade Centre at the University of Melbourne are really happy to be working together with partners in China to support that. Yeah, it would be an honour, really. It's great. Yeah. It's so wonderful to work with great partners and uh, the wonderful treasures in China. It's just amazing. I can't really imagine. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> it is. It's mind-boggling and um, it's a really wonderful adventure and a great contribution that 
we can you know try to try to make yeah i'm speaking with professor tonya eckfield who is a principal fellow at the university of melbourne as you heard there she's associated with the grimwade center as well as the school of historical and philosophical studies and she is also um based at northwestern polytechnical university in xian in china um Let's bring things into the contemporary world because there is a very contemporary element to this exhibition and it was very intentional. Um, And we see the work of a wonderful uh, contemporary artist and, I mean, they are pretty, like, epic pieces that he's created, especially for this exhibition. They're by Sai Guo Chiang and um, he has done some massive uh, works that are really, like, I guess, put around the walls of the exhibitions where the other artefacts are also being uh, displayed and he creates these works out of gunpowder and he explodes the gunpowder and there's this amazing effect and there's also these beautiful um, birds that they starlings I believe that are uh, suspended from the ceiling and also made from a traditional Chinese material of porcelain and using gunpowder as well um What's your understanding of the dialogue, the artistic dialogue between uh, Chinese ancient history and the artefacts of perhaps the Qing uh, dynasty with the contemporary world of China and the art over there? Well, if I start with the warriors, Mm. um, of course they're from the Qin period and they're 2,200 years old and and their discovery taught us a lot or teaches us a lot about that that period, the period, it was a period that was short-lived and largely unknown before this discovery. So now we know so much more. But because they were discovered in 1974, they're really part of our world and our lifetime. Um, so they have a contemporary meaning too. The warriors themselves are really important symbols in China. When I was, um, you know, at uh, Northwestern Polytechnical University in March, I asked my students why are the terracotta warriors important? And of course they firstly said, oh, they teach us about history and ancient society, they said very enthusiastically. Um, and they're in, But they also said, well, they're important for the economy and they're important for tourism and um, they're part of cultural... Uh, sorry, part of cultural diplomacy. And they also said, very importantly, they're iconic symbols of China as a secure, safe and strong country. So they're part of national pride and and they have really a life of their own. As we can see, here they are in Melbourne, far away from their original time and place. Uh, Chin Shi Huang never could have imagined that they'd be somewhere like Melbourne's NGV displayed and they were certainly objects that we would would never um, have, no one would thought we would see them and neither if we had been people in those times would we have been allowed to to see them. So they Mm. have very many um, kind of layers of meaning through time. Even in the contemporary art sense, they're almost like a colossal art installation in a way if we want to define them in contemporary art terms. So it's very interesting to have them up against um, in dialogue with um, um, Tsai Guocheng's work. I like to say where the where the present meets the past, there's dialogue. So Tsai has really... 
he's an artist who's really embracing that concept in his work um, and he's res- he's responding to um, the Terracotta Warriors and Chin Shi Huang's mausoleum site and that whole Lintong area uh, and responding to very deep kind of spiritual concerns um, in his work. So as you mentioned, the 10,000 porcelain birds that have been been uh, exposed to a gunpowder explosion so that gives them their dark beautiful dark pigment um those hang from the ceiling immediately in the in the room immediately following the warriors and they are swarming in this colossal flock mm. uh and the flock moves along and it the flock itself forms the uh shape of uh, mount lee uh, in the shadow of which the mausoleum was located. So Tsai himself said that he wanted to recapture the spirit of the warriors and bring them to life. So he chose this huge number of 10,000, a sort of similar huge number to the number of warriors, and there they are in movement and um, flying and, con- you know, continuing to move almost uh, not just through space but through time. So it's a very, very uh, interesting response. Some of these other uh, gunpowder explosions are on, um, uh, I'm not sure of the of the medium, whether the canvas or, uh, some, or paper, but uh, there are wonderful explosions resembling uh, pine trees, giving that sense of longevity almost as symbols of immortality and others of um peony flowers which are very uh in real life very delicate and short-lived and sort of remind us of kind of the of rebirth and Mm. um but also the the delicate uh and tenuous nature of of our lifetimes yeah it is a, a stunning exhibition and I hope that people can get along to both elements of the exhibition. It is one whole exhibition with the Terracotta Warriors, Guardians of Immortality, as well as Sai Guo Chiang's uh, The Transient Landscape. And uh, it is open until October, so you have time to do it. And I want to thank my guest who's been speaking about this, especially the Qing Dynasty, uh, Professor Tonya Eckfield from the University of Melbourne. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Amy. That was my pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.